Be still, my soul. I'm still not sure what the Lord's going to share with us tonight. But I'm sure that He will share exactly what we need. I guess I want to start out this evening with a verse that the Lord gave me this morning for this time. And that is simply this. He must increase and I must decrease. With that verse on our minds, let's come before the Lord in prayer tonight. Father God, we lift our hands to You and we know that You care for us. And Father, in our weakness tonight, we just pray that Jesus Christ may be increased and that we in our flesh may be decreased. And Father, I pray that we may all see Jesus and that the promise of Your Word may come alive tonight that as He is lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. Father, we just pray that this time here this evening that Satan would be bound He would be far from this place and that Your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would walk through each row and touch each heart with a message that You have for us. Father, we commit this time to Your hands and we just pray in Jesus' name that all that we say, that we think, and that we do may give honor and glory unto You, Father. And we thank You for the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Now, I've been assigned a topic for this evening called Clear Conversion. Clear Conversion. And it's a little bit difficult for me to share with you what a clear conversion is without sharing with you my testimony. And I'm not sure how this is going to go for me to share my testimony with you because I've never done it in a setting like this before. This is a pretty special time for me. And I'll probably get pretty emotional before it's all over. But that's okay because God gives us our emotions too. And I'll tell you why it's pretty special for me. Because I got converted at a time like this. I was sitting right where some of you are sitting, spending a week before the Lord without anything else to do. I just set that time apart, just like you have, to come before God. 
And I had been baptized about nine years before that. But during that week, praise God, I got converted. I've added a subtitle to the title of Clear Conversion. And as I've went through my testimony in my mind time after time, and I don't know where the Lord is meeting with you right now in your heart, only that's between you and God. But so many times in the world that we live in today, it's the difference between a clear conversion or a muddy diversion. And it's more than just that. We must continue in clarity as well. A clear conversion, not a muddy diversion, and continuing in clarity. First of all, I guess I'd just like to define conversion. Conversion is actually a military term. Remember the first verse? I'm sure you all remember it better than I do. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace. And it's just a call to be a good soldier, isn't it? It's a military term, and that's the very thing we're talking about tonight. Clear conversion. A complete wheeling about. Turning clear around. In the Bible, there's several different verses that talks about being converted. Jesus set little children on His lap and He said, except you be converted as one of these little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He also told somebody else that. His name was Peter. You remember that? And Peter had walked with Jesus. He had talked with Jesus. He had shared meals with Jesus. And he was somebody that you would have expected to be converted from the very beginning, wouldn't have you? But Jesus told Peter, He said, but I have prayed for thee, He said, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And that's why it's so emotional for me tonight to stand before you is because I decided in my heart whenever I was converted that every single time that the Lord called me to share my testimony and it would make a difference for one person, it would be worth it and I would go. And there's a million other things I could have done this week, but I'm right here tonight because I was converted at a place like this and praise God, you can be too. There's some other ways that the Bible uses that the, the word in the Greek is epistrepha, something like that. But that word just means to completely turn around, and it's used in many other forms of English, like uh, when Jesus turned around and saw a woman that had just touched the hem of his garment. He converted and to this woman, and. Whenever he told, whenever he sent out his disciples 
to these houses. He said, whenever you get to their house, He said, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace convert back to you. Let it return back to you. And when Brother Merle shared a little while ago about the evil spirits, there were moved out of the house and the heart where they dwelled. Them evil spirits returned. They converted back to that house and found it garnished and swept clean. Neither let him that is in the field return. Neither let him that is in the field convert back to get his clothes when he is called. Those are just some examples of how the Bible uses conversion. And I think it's very important that we understand that. There's a difference between repenting and converting. Repenting is saying something with your mouth. But conversion... Conversion involves your entire being. And it's a complete turning away. A complete 180 degree wheeling about and going the other way. The other thing about conversion is that it is the beginning. It is your new stake that you have driven in the ground. It is this thing and this beginning of this stake that you have driven in the ground where you will come back to in your mind. You will come back there and you will say, that's the spot, the very spot. You know, I can remember the very spot I was when I heard about this youth Bible school. I was driving. Actually, I was riding in the passenger seat of a truck in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico. And Brother Luke said, I just got off the phone with Brother Grant and they're having a youth Bible school. And my heart leapt in my chest and I said, Praise God! I would love to be there and listen. (laughs) And then it jumped in my throat again whenever I was asked to come here and share. But you know what? It just blesses me to know that there's youth that are willing to go on with God and have a clear conversion. And you know why it blesses me? Because there's some little children in the back. And them little children are looking up to you, girls. And them little children are looking up to you, men. And there's going to be a time when you have the opportunity to share with them your conversion and your testimony and further the church of God in this world. And praise His name, He will give you grace and more grace to do that when the time comes. Well, I just picked a really simple, really simple way, uh, example of conversion naturally that we do often. Did you know that it's about 22 degrees in this room right now? Celsius. That's right. 
How do you know that? It's because you started, you had a fixed starting point that you had to start with, with Fahrenheit, what we're all used to. You started with something and you worked through an equation to get to another end. Now, I am not going to preach an equation for conversion tonight. There is, actually, I'm going to preach the opposite. There is absolutely no 12-step programs. There is no dials we can twist. There is no recorded prayers we can say. There is no self-help seminars. There is no religious affiliation, no denomination. There is nothing except the blood of Jesus Christ that will convert you tonight. You must see Jesus. And more than that, ye must be born again to be converted. There's nothing that I can tell you that will make you have a clear conversion. There's nothing you can tell somebody else. It is simply the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. But tonight, by the grace of God, I want to share some things with you. For those of you that are struggling with a convert, whether you've had a clear conversion or not, and I want to share with you some victories of my own life. And I want to share with you some of the areas that I really struggled in. After I left the week-long time that I had spent with God, after I had a clear conversion and went back to my daily life and faced the demon of doubt and faced the fangs of fear and overcame them by the blood of the Lamb, I want to read two verses in Romans chapter 8. For I am persuaded, I am fully persuaded. I am fully persuaded without a shadow of a doubt. You get the picture? Fully persuaded. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nor things past. I am persuaded there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God tonight except one thing. There's one thing that can separate you from the love of God. 
And that's yourself. I'll just share with you where the devil met me at. He met me with doubt. Big time. And I'm just going to go through some things that the Bible says that God does with your sin. Because I think it's so important that you understand that if you have confessed your sins to God, He has done something with them. Okay? So we're going to go back to the 103rd Psalm. Psalms 103. And we're going to read three verses in Psalms 103. We're going to start at the 10th verse. And it says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Now, if I would go right back here and I would take off heading east, as far as I could go to the east, I mean as far as I could go, and just keep going east. Is that way east? Going east, as far as I can go. And I sent Brother Jordan as west as far as he could go. And he just kept going west. And just kept going west and I kept going east. How far is that? How far is the east from the west? And then keep going west when you get to Jordan. And when you get to me, keep going east. And that is how far that God has removed your sin from you. As far as the east is from the west. And when you get to where I got tired, keep going east. And when you get to where Jordan got tired, keep going west. And God said He does that because of His mercy. In the 11th verse, Because He has mercy towards them that fear Him. His mercies are new every morning. And because His mercies are new today, He took those sins today, and He took them as far as the east is from the west from you. Do you understand that? It's not a place you can go. You cannot get them back. They are gone as far as the east is from the west. Another place, Isaiah chapter 38. Please turn there with me. Isaiah 38. 
just going to read one verse in Isaiah 38. The 17th verse. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, for thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sin behind thy back. Now this is something for each one of you to do. There is a spot in the very center of your back that you cannot touch unless you're double-jointed. It's just right there. There's no way you can reach it. A spot in the very center of your back. A place you cannot go. You cannot touch. Somebody else can scratch your back for you. Or you can get a back scratcher. But there's a spot in the middle of your back that you cannot physically touch. And God said in His Word in the 38th chapter of Isaiah in the 17th verse that He has cast all of my sins behind thy back. He's taken all your sins and He's put them right in the very center of your back and you cannot reach them again. Another area, another thing that God has done with your sins. They're as far as the east is from the west. And now they're also in the very middle of your back in a spot where you cannot touch by yourself. You can't go there and get them again. They're gone. Isaiah 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22. Turn there with me. Another place that God takes your sin. Am I going too fast to turn? Okay. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. What's that verse say? Have you ever ridden in an airplane? Raise your hand if you have. Okay? Have you ever reached out of the airplane and grabbed a chunk of cloud before? Besides you. Probably not very many of us. And and you didn't carry that cloud very far. I guarantee it. You didn't even make it into your pocket with it. And nobody can jump out of an airplane and land on a cloud. Won't hold you. Will not work. But God said in His Word in the 44th chapter of Isaiah in the 22nd verse that He put your sin somewhere. He put your sin in a cloud. You can't go there. The cloud won't hold you. And you can't get them again. They're gone. They're in the middle of the cloud. Man can go there in an airplane. And a few people think they can grab a chunk of cloud. But it won't happen. You can't get it. Jeremiah. Whoops, excuse me. Turn with me to uh, Micah chapter 7. Micah 
Another place that God takes our sins when we confess them to Him. Micah chapter 7. I want to make sure I go slow enough that I don't leave you in the dust because if I leave you in the dust, it will do no good for me to stand here. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now some of you are out here riding a boat. And some of you are down here by the water. But I want to take you on a different boat. And I want to take you out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to a little island called Guam. Actually, we're going to go off the coast of Guam a little ways. And out there in the Pacific Ocean, in the, in the middle of the ocean floor, is a large trench called the Mariana Trench. And that trench is 6.8 miles deep below sea level. 6.8 miles deep. That is the deepest area in the ocean known on the face of this globe at this time. Now, 6.8 miles, that might not seem like real far. But let me put that into proportion. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in this world. It peaks out at 29,030 feet above sea level. If you took Mount Everest and you put it in the very bottom of the Mariana Trench, there would still be over a mile of water above the peak. 6,000 and some odd feet of water above the top of Mount Everest if it was sunk clear to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. There is so much water and hydraulic pressure at the bottom of the Marianas Trench that no human being will ever be able to go there outside of a, some kind of a submersible, high-pressurized little submarine, just like in an airplane through a cloud. You'll never be able to go there. Ever. But in this chapter, these two verses, it says that God delighteth in mercy. And because He delighteth in mercy, He has taken your sins and cast them into the depths of the sea. Now, I don't know how many thousand million sins there are in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. But I guarantee you that no one is going down there to get them again. They are gone! Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. (laughs) 
So there are four places that God takes our sins. He takes them as far as the east is from the west. He takes them in the middle of a cloud. He takes them in the center of our back and He takes them to the depth of the seas. And in this 31st chapter of Jeremiah, there's three things He does with them. Three things. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these days, saith the Lord, I will put My law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and they and will be their God, and they shall be My people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sin no more. says He forgives their iniquities. There. Did you read that? Forgives them. And then, at the very end of the 34th verse, says, I will remember their sin no more. So I want to ask you a question. If God's not going to remember your sin anymore, why would you want to? That says that God forgive you and He forgot it forever. Don't go back and dig it up again. It's gone. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because it's very, it was very real to me. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 1 says, He that dashes in pieces is cut out before your face. You know what that means? That means the devil. The very one that dashed you in pieces last week is going to come roaring up in your face next week. He's going to come roaring up in your face and he's going to say, Sister, you remember? And you say, No, I can't remember that anymore. Because God forgive it. And he forgot it. And I'm not going to remember it anymore either. And it's going to be real. He that dashes in pieces has come up before your face. It's going to be Satan right there. I just talked to a brother. Actually, I've been talking to him ever since I had this assignment. And I texted him and I said, what caused you not to have a clear conversion initially? And we texted for about three weeks. And then one day I was sitting on the seat of an airplane getting ready to fly to a funeral in Ohio for a little five-year-old girl. And I got this text. Twelve years and eleven months after my back 
baptism, I am converted. And this sign of the cross is beautiful. And that text was from that little girl's daddy. One of my best friends. Praise God, he said. She didn't die so that I could become converted, but he said, God converted me. Tonight, I don't know what it will take for you to be converted, but God knows. And I'm going to trust Him with your heart because He's kept it this far. But I know one thing. Whenever you see Jesus and He gets a hold of you, there's nothing that's going to stop you from forgetting your sins and remembering where Jesus put them. I guess I'd like to share a little more of my testimony. And I'd like to share it in the spirit of Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, which simply says, They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and by the loving... They loved not their life even unto the death. And first and foremost... I want to make sure that we all understand that the glory goes to the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is the only thing that can convert your heart tonight. It's the only thing that you will be able to look back at whenever you, he that dashes in pieces has come up before your face and say, right there was where I began my conversion. And right there is where my beginning point is. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. No more. No more of this stuff keep rolling back about the past. It's gone. <clears throat> You know, the Spirit is alive and well today. And we've experienced Him this week, haven't we? And I hardly know where to begin with my own testimony. I suppose I'll just begin by saying that I never fit in to any of those cliques that Joe was sharing about that was in his high school. There just wasn't very many in the school I went to. There was only about 38 people in my class. At the school I went to, if you weren't a jock, you weren't anything, and I sure didn't like sports very much. And so, I thought, like most young men and young women, Really, sins, the Bible divides them only into three categories. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. I believe that's right. Lust, lust, lust. 
And you know, there's a lust, I believe, in every young man's life for power. And I believe that same lust is in women's lives too. You just kind of want to be in power. And the reason is because the very father of lust wanted to be in power. He wanted to he wanted to grab the Godhead. He wanted to storm God's throne and take it from him. And that's the very lust of power that Satan breathed into my life. And I chose it. And there was nothing that I couldn't become because I lusted for power like that. And it kind of came to a head when I bought a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And I don't know if you've ever straddled an Iron Eagle or not. But there's nothing quite like the throb of that motor. And there's not anything that you can't conquer with the wind through your hair going as fast as you can go. Knowing. Just knowing that one slip, it's all over. But knowing in your mind at least, it's really deception that you're in control. And so, I give in to that. And through all that, I I rebelled totally. I rebelled against my parents. And I rebelled against my family. And I rebelled against my church family. And I rebelled against God. I was a rebel in every shape of the word. And then there were some other things that rebels do that's pretty cool. And pretty soon, I had more addictions than I didn't have addictions. Every part of my life, was an ad- I was an addict. <clears throat> and then... I got tired of dating. And I one night I remember as a young man, I said, Lord, it was actually after I had just started dating my wife. I'd had one date with her. And I said, Lord, it's either going to be the girl or the bike. I wasn't a believer. That's just what I said. And... Praise God, it was the girl and not the bike. But that's where He led me. And so, because I had been raised in a Christian family, and I had been raised a German Baptist, and I was a German Baptist all my life. I I wasn't from the world. I was a German Baptist. And we got married. And so, of course... I need to be baptized because we were married. And I need to fit into the to the life of a German Baptist, the German Baptist American dream.
But I'm going to tell you something. It wasn't a very pretty dream. And the reason it wasn't is because Jesus wasn't there. On my half, He wasn't there. And I still went to church and done the motions. We had children. I wasn't converted. And then one day, a little piece of paper came. It said there's a week-long seminar. And uh, if you can come, we'd, we'd like for you to go. With a bunch of people I didn't even know. Very good. So I decided I'd go. Actually, I think my wife decided I would go. <clears throat> and so I went. And the Lord changed my life there. And I was converted. And I want to share something with you. Because it might be you tonight. I know in my heart that that was the last chance I had. That was it. The Lord wasn't going to call me anymore. And the reason I know that is because all night long, the first night, I tossed and I turned and I wrestled an angel just like Jacob. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, my hip came out of joint. And I lay there in agony. And the angel told me that you will make a choice tonight that will finalize your destiny forever. And it impacted my life. And if it can impact one of your lives tonight, praise God. Before that time, I just one addiction I had was nicotine. I couldn't stay away from the stuff. I tried myself all the time to quit. Got married. Cindy said she didn't like me smoking, so I threw away a pack of cigarettes and got a can of chew. And I, there was nothing that I could do to make that vice disappear. And that's why I chose the verse I did that we went to before prayer. Because there is nothing that you can do tonight to make them your vices disappear. There's nothing that you can do tonight except choose Jesus to have a clear conversion. He must increase and I must decrease. If He doesn't increase, you will never walk in victory. But that night, laying in that bed, I decided to follow Jesus. I decided to let Him have control of my life. And I went back home.
And our children still talk about the time when Daddy went to Pennsylvania. And it's made a difference for them. And whenever you find Jesus and you let Him into your heart and you start walking with Him and talking with Him, it will make a difference in your heart too. And praise God, some of you already have done that. Clear conversions. Oh my. Well, there's four areas that I just thought about <clears throat> about clear conversions. Other than my testimony that has blessed me. And they are this. Counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Counting the cost. The second area is having a clear conscience before God. The third area is complete consecration. And the fourth area is a continual commitment. Counting the cost. Clear conversion. Or I mean clear conscience. Complete consecration. And continual commitment. I don't know how many of you was uh, listening to that <clears throat> very beautifully written um, testimony of someone's baptism that Leslie, of his father's baptism that Leslie read the other day. But I have heard that in the past, Luke chapter 14 was preached at someone's baptism counting the cost. And if I recall, Brother Leslie, that was about 1907, 6. And he read in that paper that Matthew 18 was was gone over a little bit, and I don't have any problem with going over Matthew 18 and baptizing. But I wanted to know why we ever stopped counting the cost of discipleship to follow Jesus. And tonight, we're going to do that for just a little bit. Because I don't want to leave any of you in the dust. And if you haven't had a clear conversion, there's going to be a call for that as we go through this chapter. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, if any woman come to me, 
and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot, he cannot, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? I think I'll stop right there. Verse 26 and verse 27. At the very beginning of them both say, If any man and whosoever... And tonight, if you're sitting here and you're not sure if you've had a clear conversion or not, you're any man and you're any woman and you're whosoever, whosoever. Verse 26, if any man come to me, tonight I just want you to know that Jesus wants you to come to Him. If you haven't already give your life to Him, He's asking you as any man and as any woman to come to Him. It doesn't make any difference where you've been in the past. Remember what God does with your sins? It doesn't matter. If you're any man. Any man! Any man come to Him. But there's a condition. You see, in our lives, we kind of like people because they're like us. And I like my relationship to be really good with my family. And I like my relationship with my friends to be good. And so I work on it. And I try to build it. But this verse says, if you're going to come to Him, you have to count the cost. And that you have to hate. You have to hate His father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters. You have to hate all the relationships around you. You have to hate them because you've chosen Jesus. doesn't sound very fair, does it? But that's the cost of being His disciple. You must hate everything besides Him. Because anything that comes before Him is an idol. Every single relationship that you have must be second to Him. Oh yeah, and there's another thing in that verse that He added there. Jesus' own words. There's one other thing that you must hate besides your earthly relationships. You must hate your life too. Your life! The very thing you're trying to build, the German Baptist American dream or whatever it is, you must hate it in light of Him. You cannot love your life and be a disciple of Jesus. It will not work. Not my ideas. Right out of here. This is Bible school, right? 
Verse 27. And whosoever, whosoever may, whosoever will, let him come unto me. It says in Revelation, I think. But this says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross. <clears throat> now, the verse in front of, the verse 26 there says, if any man come to me. Jesus is calling all men unto him. And this verse is changed slightly. It says, if any man, whosoever, does not bear his cross and come after me. He's calling all of us to him, and then he's calling us after him. And he says, you must bear your cross. Have you ever wondered what your cross is? The cost of discipleship, the cost of having a clear conversion in Jesus Christ. What's your cross? Well, I want to ask you a question. If two men, one of them is a believer and one of them is an unbeliever, and they both get cancer, does only one of them have a cross? Oftentimes I've heard that some burden in my life is my cross. The man that has cancer that's a believer, that cancer is his cross. But what about the man that's not a believer that has cancer? Is that still his cross? What about two two women? One of them's a sister in the Lord and the other one is not, and they both break their leg. Does only one of them have a cross to bear or not? Tonight I want to interject something as I've thought about this a little bit. We are, according to this verse, called to come after Jesus, bearing our cross. And tonight, I want to introduce to you what I think the cross is, and I think that's your attitude. You must pick up your attitude in the likeness of Jesus and follow after Him. Now let's back up just a little bit into history. And let's go to the night that Jesus died. And on that night that Jesus died, where was the first time that we can find Him crying out to God? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And He said, Oh, my Father, accept this cup pass from Me. And then they took Him And I'm not going to go through all the trial. But He bore His cross to a place called Golgotha. Interpreted the place of the skull. Jesus died on His cross in Golgotha, the place of the skull. And tonight, you are called through the Word of God to die on your cross in the place of your skull. Follow Jesus. Take up your cross. Take up your attitude and be willing 
to go clear to the end. But first, be willing to die in your attitude on the cross in your mind. If you're not willing to pick up your attitude every morning and say that no matter what happens to me today, I'm going to live like Jesus did. I'm going to follow after Jesus today. It won't work. You can't expect to be dragging a giant chunk of wood around all the time, but you can be expected to have an attitude that reflects Jesus' attitude on the cross. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured that cross. Verse 28, For which of you... Things have changed a little bit now. For which of you... First it was any man, and then whosoever. But now you've made a decision. You have made a decision that you will come to Jesus and that you will come after Him and that you want to have a relationship with Him in a personal way. And which of you? Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? What's that mean? Well, I'll just tell you what it means to me. To me it means that you must understand that of yourself you can't. You cannot. There is no way that you can build a tower big enough to follow Jesus. You must only depend upon Him to give you what you need every day. Which of you, intending to build a tower, setteth not down first and counteth whether he have capital to finish it? Whether you have enough. Enough what? Whether you have enough faith. No matter what. Are you going to depend on the faith of Jesus? Or are you going to depend on something that is in your life? some other thing besides a relationship, some other thing besides your life, some other idol that you've raised up, are you going to depend on that to make your tower tall enough to get you to heaven? Have you really counted the cost? I think for sake of time, which we're about out of, I'm just going to skip down through some more of that. To the very end, uh, thirty verse thirty-three. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Young men and young women, this verse is so important. You must forsake all, or you cannot be. Jesus' disciple. I know it doesn't sound fair at all. It's not my opinions. It's just the Word of God. That's the cost of discipleship. It's going to cost you everything you have. It's going to take you places you never thought you'd go. You're going to be asked to do things you never thought you would do. 
Have you counted the cost of discipleship for Jesus? Are you willing to walk clearly, reflecting in your life that you have counted the cost? Quickly moving to clear conscience. take you to a group of people. This group of people you can find in the 8th chapter of John. And we're going to go there tonight in your minds. I'm going to invite you there. There's just a little huddle of people. And they're huddling around a man that's squatting on the ground. And as he's squatting on the ground, his fingers are tracing lines in the dirt. And amidst this huddle of people, there breaks in some more people dragging a woman. And they drag this woman over to this man that's riding in the dirt. And they accuse her of adultery. Caught in the very act. And Jesus was the man on the ground doodling doodling in the dirt. And the Word of God says, after He had told them that he that hath no sin, let him cast the first stone. It says that they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. A clear conscience. Tonight, as you lay on your beds, there's going to be a hand doodling in the sands of your mind. Nothing that I can see, but you'll be able to see it. And your conscience, I like to think of as a thermostat for your soul. You know, whenever something happens and you know that you've done wrong, our children say, I got all hot. It's because your conscience convicted you. But as I walk around up here, I want to tell you something. Your conscience can be clear. You can have a clear conscience before God. And when Jesus doodles in the sands of your mind, you don't have to be convicting. But when it is convicting, I would just encourage you to clear it up between you and God. And keep a clear conscience before you.
The Bible says to keep a clear conscience before God and man. And Paul, as he was standing there, one, one of the times in Acts, he was standing before this group of people. And he said, I have kept a pure conscience. I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. Now, I want you to think about Paul's life a little bit. And I want you to think about the thermostat of your soul being your conscience. How could Paul say that he had lived in all good conscience before God until that day? That's because he thought he was doing the right thing all the time. And so don't mistake me for thinking that you should only follow your conscience. Because Paul persecuted the church of God and he thought he was doing the right thing. The truth will never change. The truth is always the same in this book. But your conscience can be convicted by the Holy Spirit for you to make things right with God. Move on into... Actually, before we go any further, I, I need to share this part of my testimony. This part is so important because my conscience wouldn't let me come clear until I dealt with the problem. You see, my addictions in my life were not the problems. They were merely the symptoms. And there was a much deeper problem in my life. It wasn't tobacco. It wasn't the lust of the eye. It wasn't the lust of the flesh. And it wasn't the pride of life. This is where my conscience spoke to me. And it may be different for you. But we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want to ask you, before I read anywhere, if you think that being as stubborn as a mule would be a sin if God was trying to lead you somewhere. And I want to ask you if you think that dwindling with witchcraft and sorcery is a sin before God. I think those are pretty obvious. No way. If God's trying to lead you somewhere, if God's trying to work with you somewhere, you shouldn't have anything to do with witchcraft and you shouldn't have anything to do with stubbornness. And this was my root sin. 1 Samuel chapter 23. I mean chapter 15, excuse me, verse 23. It says, for rebellion... For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Stubbornness, being like a mule, is like an idol before God. And if you're living in rebellion, it's just like that you're playing with a Ouija board all the time. You are in the pit of hell! Because of your sin. But Jesus, and Jesus' blood alone can redeem you from there. And I stand here in victory tonight as living proof of that. Praise God, I went back and I told my father that I was sorry that I had been a rebel. And I want to tell you something tonight. My relationship with my father and mother is so sweet today. It is such a blessing. 
such a blessing. And that's not all that changed. You see, there's another verse in Joel that says that God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And if you think you've lived too long in rebellion, if you think you've lived too long as stubborn as a mule, and that God doesn't care anymore, I'm here to tell you He can redeem those years because He did for me. And more than that, He's redeemed them years, I believe, to our children. All those years that our children grew up and I wasn't converted, those years have been redeemed. And we still struggle sometimes. But praise God, this side of the cross looks mighty nice. He must increase and I must decrease. Complete consecration. I'm going to move rather quickly now. Hopefully, if I can find my notes. Complete consecration. I would just encourage you to take a look back through the Old Testament. And I would like for you to look back through the Old Testament at the temples as they were ordained by God. And designed by Him, given to man. And then they were dedicated and consecrated. And it was only after that did the glory of God fill the temple. Now, they were complete. It didn't say they just consecrated and dedicated half the temple. And it didn't say they just went into the holiest of holies and consecrated the altars. It says they dedicated the whole temple. The entire structure to God. Now, what does the New Testament say? It says, What? Know ye not? That your bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Tonight, are you completely consecrated to God? This is another part of my testimony and a very important one. I've shared this one other time in a public setting, but tonight I want to share it again. I want you to picture your life as a tabletop, a giant tabletop, maybe the size of this entire room. This is the way that I personally work through this complete consecration. This was before my conversion. The entire room, one solid tabletop. In my vision, in my dreams, it was white. And there was a hole in the very center of that table, about three feet around, And that hole was labeled complete consecration. And I took the idols of my life one by one over to that hole of complete consecration. And I grabbed power and I drug it over there 
kicking and biting and shoved it in the hole. But you know something? When I was taking power to the hole, this idol grew great big. And it overcame me. And so I could barely get power stuffed in there until I had to deal with this big monster. And so I would leave power go and I would come over here and work on something else. And I would get it almost to the hole and over there. Over there was something also. And in that corner, and in that corner, and there, and here, and it got really frustrating. And I don't know if any of you are there tonight. But I want to tell you something. When I was converted, it went like this. I went over to that hole called complete consecration. In the middle of that white tabletop, amidst all the idols of my life, and I jumped in that hole. God doesn't want you to consecrate your idols. He doesn't want you to consecrate your addictions. He wants to consecrate you tonight. Continual commitment. He must increase and I must decrease. James chapter 5. There's a couple verses that's not very fun to read, but we must read them. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And this is why that I feel like it's very important to have this final point of continual commitment. is because these verses tell me that it's possible for me to be converted from my conversion. To turn away from the things that I know is truth. It also tells us that we need to be there for each other. And it blesses the one who helps your struggling brother. And so I just want to share that as you continue down the path of a clear conversion with a clear past, living in a clear presence, looking for a time in the future to be with the Lord in a city that's completely clear where you can see through the pavement to continually commit your life to God. To continually work not out of duty, but out of love for your brother and out of your deep relationship with Jesus.
There's a difference between being committed and contributing. I'm sure several of you have heard this before, but I just want you to think about a plate of bacon and eggs. A lot of you would probably just eat them right now, wouldn't you? But I want you to think about the difference between the chicken and the pig. There's eggs and bacon on that plate. The chicken contributed, but the pig was committed. The chicken contributed a couple eggs to that plate for your breakfast, but the pig was totally committed. He gave it everything he had, even his life. Are you continually committed to having a clear conversion in Jesus? So I would just like to recap them four points of my personal victory. Counting the cost. Giving a, having a clear conscience. Being completely consecrated and having a continual commitment. Now I want to say one more thing. Looking forward to tomorrow night or tomorrow afternoon. The number one fear... In America is what? The number one fear in America is public speaking. Speaking in public. And I'm no different than anyone else. The number one fear. What do you think the number one message is that Satan doesn't want shared? The Gospel of Jesus. Now tomorrow afternoon, you're going to be doing the thing that most Americans hate the most, sharing the message that Satan hates the most. And I just want you to think about that a little bit. Because If you don't have a clear conversion, there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to be very clear with your message. And I really think that's how it's come that a lot of us haven't shared much in the past is because we're not real sure where we were ourselves. But if you're really sure yourself, there's nothing that stands in your way. There's no fear of man of sharing the message. And there's no fear of Satan suppressing the message. You know why? Because you are the message. And no one will take that from you. They cannot. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things past, nor things present. Didn't get them all added one in there. There's nothing that can say that can keep you from the love of God. <clears throat> I want to share one more story and then I'll take my seat. This story I want to share. I want you to ask yourself as I share this story, if this man had a clear conversion, 
if this man was living in the clarity of his walk with the Lord, if this man knew clearly where he was going, <clears throat> this happened in 1981. This is a true story. In China, in 1981, there was one million Bibles smuggled into the country. In an operation called Project Pearl, there was a pastor there named Pastor John who committed to taking... 10,000 of those Bibles and distributing them to the sheep and his flock. Pastor John knew what it could cost him to be a disciple of Jesus. He had counted the cost. And he was willing to forsake everything he had to share the Gospel. And the authorities found out And things got pretty tense and Pastor John took those 10,000 Bibles and he buried them under an old barn. And the authorities came. They were so sure that he had something to do with it that they just went ahead and imprisoned Pastor John. And they knew that he had so much to do with it that they put him in intense persecution and they beat him. And they'd done all kinds of gruesome things to Pastor John to try to tell, get him to tell them who was behind and who was behind this movement and where all the Bibles were. And Pastor John said, I'm not going to tell you. And they said, Oh, yes, you will. So they took Pastor John and they took him outside. And they had a wooden box that was one foot square and four feet tall. About this tall right here. And only one foot square. Can you imagine how tipsy that box would be if you stood it on its end? And they stood Pastor John on top of that box and they took a noose and they put it around Pastor John's neck. And they tied that noose to an overhead beam. And they said, this is your last chance to tell us who is behind this movement and where these Bibles are at. They said, you will have to make a choice. You will either tell us or you will die when you fall off that box. And Pastor John said, I'm not going to tell you. And he stood on that box. And they decided two guards would watch him as he stood on the box and watch him die as he fell off. So two guards were assigned to him and Pastor John stood there all day on that box with his hands tied behind his back and a noose around his neck tied to a beam over his head. And as he stood there on that box, he didn't waste 
the time that he had, but he preached the gospel message to those two guards at his feet. And the guard shift got over and they left. And more guards came and sat under Pastor John's box all night. And they kind of marveled as the sun came up and kissed his brow the next morning. And Pastor John's mouth was really dry because he'd just been preaching all night. And the Lord refreshed him with some rain that morning. And all that day, two guards were assigned under Pastor John's box. And those men, they just got bored of sitting there watching him, and so they started to gamble. And you know what that reminded Pastor John of? It reminded him of when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the men that was gambling for His clothing. And so, he started preaching to them about the cross again. And they just kept marveling at this man standing on this box that didn't care about anything except sharing Jesus with those around him. And he stood there on that box all the second day. And he stood on that box all the third day. And he stood on this little box all the fourth day, preaching the Word of God. And Pastor John stood on this little box all the fifth day and all the sixth day. And by the seventh day, his legs were swollen to twice their size. His hands were blue from no circulation. And Pastor John preached the Gospel to the guards. And the believers in that prison give glory to God that the Gospel message was going out. And it became such a talk among the guards that all of the people in the city that he was imprisoned at that had any place of authority, came and looked at this man that stood on this box. And every time they came and looked at this man that stood on the box, they heard the Gospel message. At the end of the eleventh day of standing on this box, Pastor John felt like he was near to collapse. But he said, he just felt like the Holy Spirit revived him. Eleven days on this box. And the Holy Spirit revived him. And on day 13, Pastor John stood on this box with his hands tied behind his back and his legs swollen to twice their normal size preaching the Gospel nearly completely exhausted. And the thirteenth day ushered in a giant storm. And rain beat on Pastor John. 
and lightning cracked across the sky and thunder pealed. And the wind started to howl. And Pastor John's box started to tip. And he knew the end was near. But there were still guards right below him. And Pastor John kept sharing the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And at last, it was over. And he lapsed into unconsciousness as his box teetered and Pastor John fell. And ten minutes later, Pastor John woke up. Not where he thought he'd be. He was on an old, cold prison floor. And there was guards giving him a drink of water. And there was guards rubbing his arms and they said, Don't die, Pastor John! Don't die! And he said, What's going on? I, I don't understand. And they said, We want to know your God! We want to know your Jesus! At the very exact time that you fell into unconsciousness and your box tipped out from under you, there was a bolt of lightning that pierced the rope that was holding you to that beam. And we want to know you're Jesus. Now, how many days are you going to be willing to stand on the box that God has given you and to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. One more verse. Can't get enough of these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 19. This is a message to each of our hearts. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. that both thou and thy seed may live. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I think tonight that we're going to sing a song. Now, I'm going to go sit down. And if the Lord's spoken to you anyway, you can come up here. But I'm not going to stand here and keep telling everybody to come forward. Just let the Lord work. So God bless you as we sing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. And then on the second verse, the second time we sing it through, I would like to sing, Lord, prepare me to be a missionary. Start that. Lord, prepare me.